Mollier, and you're listening to Radio Cherry Bomb. You're the bomb. Hi, Bomb Squad. You're listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, where we celebrate those women cooking up a storm, kicking down doors, and making the food world a better place. We're also the number one female-focused food podcast in the universe. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. Let's thank today's sponsors, Le Cordon Bleu Culinary Schools and Emmy, the makers of beautiful cheese from Switzerland. Happy birthday to the Cherry Bomb Cookbook. Our baby turned two on October 10th. This might be an obvious statement, but I love our cookbook. I get so happy every time I see that pink cover. If you already own the book, thank you. If you don't, pick up a copy from your favorite indie bookstore or head to cherrybomb.com for a signed copy. I will personally personalize it. That sounds redundant, but hey, I'll be there with my Sharpie waiting. The Radio Cherry Bomb Food for Thought Tour is headed to Kansas City, Missouri on November 4th. We'll be hanging out at Corvino with the local bomb squad, Tickets are available at cherrybomb.com. Thank you to Carrie Gold for supporting our tour, and thank you to everyone who came to our Houston stop at Nancy's Hustle. I loved meeting the H-Town Bomb Squad. Let's talk about today's guest, Erin Goyawaga. She is a photographer, blogger, mother, pastry chef, and warm, wonderful human. She's also the author of the brand new cookbook, Canel Avenue. Erin will be joining us at Jubilee Seattle on November 2nd. She'll be interviewing Allison Roman for one of the keynote conversations, and I cannot wait. Jubilee is sold out, but keep an eye on our Instagram for some other cool events we're hosting in the city that weekend. Before we hear from Erin, let's hear a word from Emmy Cheese from Switzerland. Hey, Bomb Squad, let's talk about Emmy Cheese from Switzerland. Emmy's beautiful variety of cheeses are crafted from the freshest milk from local Swiss farms. One of our favorites is Emmy Ligriere AOP. With notes of candied walnuts, spice, and dried fruit, Emmy's Ligriere AOP is perfect for snacking. And if you want to get more creative, you can do what Chef Elizabeth Faulkner does and make an apple and Ligriere crumble. This perfect fall recipe is fragrant with nutmeg and cinnamon, and the apple and Gruyere are perfect companions. Make it next level by melting some Emmy raclette on top. Looking for something more savory? How about this special recipe from Chef Elizabeth? French onion soup pizza with Emmy Gruyere AOP, fresh thyme, and mushrooms. You can find these recipes and more at emmyusa.com. And you can find Emmy's delicious cheeses from Switzerland, the ones with the distinctive blue and red logo, at your favorite grocery store or cheesemonger. And now, my conversation with Aaron Goyawaga. You've been blogging for so long, you're one of the... The OGs? One of the OGs. Not as OG as like Heidi Swanson, but I started in January of 2008. So I feel like, yeah, definitely before people were monetizing or worried about who was reading or nobody really had eyes on them necessarily. It's funny to know who we think the OGs are and who they think the OGs are. <laughs> so Heidi Swanson, okay, shout out Heidi to Heidi. Heidi Swanson, yes. I haven't seen Heidi in a while. Yeah, she's amazing. She's great. We are so excited to hear. Welcome to New York. Thank you for having me. Are you having a good time? I always love coming to New York. From kind of sleepy Seattle. It's, it's a nice piece. It's so funny. When we go to Seattle, I do not think of it as sleepy <laughs> because 
there's so many people now who we love in Seattle. Of course, and of course. we have to get to all their restaurants and. But you know, the West Coast is there's space and. Yes. Just trees and yes. you know, it just feels open. Seattle's great. The air, I feel like the air is so much nicer in Seattle. It's chill. The food is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You guys yeah. got it good out there. I think so. That's all why the I'm fruit there. trees. Yeah. There are fruit trees everywhere. everywhere. It, you just walk down a sidewalk and there are fruit trees just dropping fruit. Yeah. And some of the neighborhoods actually put nets around the trees so the neighbors can collect them so they don't go to waste. And there's actually an organization that it's, I think, a nonprofit that goes around the city and you just tell them, okay, I have this tree. I don't have time to pick the fruit. And they come and pick it for you and then they distribute it. I think that's called gleaning. Someone did a story for us about it's called gleaning, okay. that there are all these trees, all these like fruit-bearing trees across the country where the fruit just goes bad because it falls to the ground, it's not harvested. And there are all these organizations out there that will go and collect the fruit and make sure it's, it's distributed to food shelters or places where people will actually yeah. put it to good use. But like, I saw plums and quince and, yeah. oh my God, yeah. so many Apples beautiful things. Apples and pears right now everywhere. I feel like it's a really conscientious city. And very environmental, obviously. When you say conscientious, tell us more what you mean by that. I'm talking specifically about food. Ultimately, also social issues, which are social justice issues, are really important to me. But with food about sourcing, which everybody talks about this now, but Seattle was one of the first cities that I ever knew where, you know, the city was composting or every Sunday there's a farmer's market. And it's not just a wholesale farmer's market, but the farmers go kind of like what you have here in New York. But... Not at other places that I've lived in the U.S. had that. And so people really put their money where their ideas are. And, and I really respect that. And I feel at home there. Tell us the journey from Spain to Seattle. So I grew up in Bilbao, which is the Basque country um, With the in famous Spain. museum now. Yes. And actually, my father worked on that museum. So I have kind of like an emotional connection to it. But um, I grew up there. I went to school. I went to school for business. And then right after I finished university, I moved to the U.S. I had an American boyfriend who is now my husband. And we lived in various places. We lived in Denver and in Florida for 11 years. You lived in Florida for 11 years? Oh my gosh, I had no idea. What part of Florida? West Palm Beach. Wow. So I started my blog. I went to culinary school in Florida. I was a pastry chef in Florida. This whole side, I had no (laughs) idea. Okay, you probably wouldn't picture me in Florida, but um, my dad's in Palm Beach. Yeah. Oh, okay. I would not picture you. So I was in Jupiter. Mm -hmm. You know where that is. And my husband had a business, and he sold it, and we were free to go wherever we wanted, and we thought away from Florida. (laughs) Sorry, Florida Floridians. So we picked Seattle, and I've been in Oregon as a teenager, as an exchange student when I was fourteen and fifteen. And I always loved it. I loved Portland. I was always a music fan. So, of course, Seattle was kind of like a reference point. And then I had friends through blogging there. And my husband is from Northern California. So it just suited what we were looking for. And as soon as we arrived, everything kind of fell into place. We found a place to live. I found a studio. My kids made friends. So it just became a thing very quickly. So I feel like I'm from there now. That's amazing. So when you got there, what what was the plan? Were you going to continue? So by then I was already blogging. Okay. And I already had my first cookbook. You, so 
Oh, by the time you moved to yeah. Seattle. Okay. So I've been there okay. six years, mm-hmm. and my book came out. My first book came out in 2012. Okay. Obviously, I'm a freelancer, so I could work from anywhere. My husband didn't have a job. But you weren't so broke because he had we, sold his We had a little bit, like okay. tiny, tiny. I don't want it to seem like, oh, we were just like Bill going Gates. from, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> we just had a little bit of money to maybe last six months without him having a job. So we found this house. He was kind of renovating it, and I was working freelance work, just like I kind of continued doing the blogging, any editorial work that was coming my way. I did the... I did have a few shoots for Cherry Bun. Beautiful and stories. So we kind of got settled and that eventually he found a job. So we're definitely grounded and Seattle is our home. You do so many things well. Oh, you, thank you write beautifully. You take beautiful photographs. You are also a recipe developer and a blogger and all these things. When did you put it all together that, oh, I could... I could turn this into something professional. Oh my goodness, that took a long time. I think when my first book came out, I felt, okay, I got paid for this, so I must be doing something. But I felt, and this is very common, I think you probably hear this a lot, but I felt like an imposter for many years. I knew I was good at cooking, I'm a professional pastry chef, and I had been that for many years, and I come from a family of pastry chefs. But the photography aspect, and the writing came after. And because I'm also European, I think I don't have the American, uh, sometimes I'm very jealous of Americans who can easily say, well, this is mine. Like, I made this mine, it's my thing. And sometimes I think it's just false modesty. I don't know, I, I struggle with that a little bit. Why don't I, why can't I just own what I do and, and say, yes, I do all these things. But anyway, not to bring it down, but it took me a long time. I would say I started blogging in 2008 and probably 2013 or so I felt like, okay, I can, I have some skills. For folks who are out there who they're blogging, they're recipe developing, they're doing all those different things who are like, how do I make this a living? What advice do you have for them? Oh, it's so hard. I think I actually don't, cannot make a living only from the editorial side of things. So from cookbooks or blogging, for me, I'm speaking of my circumstance. I know a lot of people that participate in advertising through blogging and they can make a revenue. But for me, my income that sustains me comes from all the commercial jobs I do. So clients, commercial clients, that it's not necessarily my vision and I'm just an executor of what they have to say. And I don't maybe talk about that side of my work so much because on my Instagram or my blog is usually my ideas that I share, but definitely financially. And, and that's another aspect, you know, like how to maintain financial freedom and all of that is really important to me. But um, I juggle between these two sides. And you're also a mom. I'm we, a mom. We've had some people reach out to us just asking for us to ask more mom questions. Oh, yes. And how do moms in the food world do it? So we met your lovely young daughter, and yes. she was at work with you. Yeah. So I have two kids, and I quit my pastry job because it didn't pay enough to pay for childcare. So I think now, and I didn't have any role models for you know, women chefs that had both things, and I... I think if you own your own business, it's possible because it allows you, gives you flexibility. But when you're working for someone else, it's very difficult because 
wages are just so low. And well, I've been out of it for 13 years, but back then, definitely, I couldn't. No, well, I couldn't it make hasn't it. Hasn't changed, and there's still not much in the way of childcare. So how do you? You've got these two great so kids. So currently, they're 13 and 10. I have right now. I have childcare one day a week, and then I have another mom who picks up for me if I have a shoot that day or anything I need. And then my husband has some flexibility. And then my oldest son, you know, he's 13, so he can actually walk home. And he's, but when they were little, it was very difficult. And I worked from home a lot. When I was writing my first cookbook, I worked from home. I had childcare um, three times a week. My parents flew from Spain and stayed with us three months. So it's wow. definitely, I don't come from money. And I always, I actually always wonder, like, how do people do that? Because it is so expensive. And I want to know the financial behind all the things. And you know, I don't come from money. I don't make a lot of money. And I say no to a lot of things that I sometimes want to take. So it is... Because? Because my children at an age that I feel like physically they don't... They can do a lot for themselves, but emotionally they need some more presence. And I don't... They don't have grandparents around or other family members. So it's just me and my husband. And... I just feel, I have, I struggle with guilt of not giving them sometimes what they want, which I do. I mean, I give them so much. Mom guilt is real. Financial strain is real. And this country needs to really support families, not just saying things, but actually putting policies in place. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of it is financial structure. Yeah. Yeah. And you also have a job where it's not like you can say, Okay, no problem. I'll do this later. Like it's dependent on is the light good? Is the, you know, 20 minutes is the, that this thing took to bake done? Yeah. You know, you can't just be like, "Oh, <laughs> I can leave that in the oven. It'll be fine." It won't be. But I do have a studio and I have to say it allows me to separate a little bit from like home or the kids or it gives me a little bit of structure and separation between cuz my job is very sort of like, "Oh, I'm cooking." So it could it's just like the boundaries are a little blurry, but having a physical space where I can go to is good. And I can bring my kids there. My son can be home by himself now, and he can actually babysit my daughter for a bit, and she comes with me. And there's a lot of times that she comes with me. Have they shown any interest in what you do professionally? It's funny. My son is always looking at my Instagram stories, and he kind of follows along what I'm doing, but he doesn't really participate they are very, they like cooking, but I wouldn't say, oh, my kids love cooking. Yeah, so I don't know where it's all going to go for them or what they think. You have a pretty big following on Instagram. Do you have any advice for folks building their own accounts? I'm also conflicted about this. <laughs> because, I mean, I was lucky that I started early on. So I just got noticed easier because there weren't so many other accounts to look at. I've lost following, so that's the truth. It's normal because we're bombarded by content and with content all the time, so I think it's okay to actually reach. I, th I love organic growth and sustainable growth, so I'm okay with the people that are not going to really want to see it. I don't want them to suffer by looking at it. Like, we, oh my God. we have that debate in the office a lot because we have done absolutely zero to juice our numbers. And I'm always like, I'd want people 
to follow us because they want to follow us. Yes, and to find you and that they are excited. So I think my advice, truly, even if this sounds so vague, is to really do whatever you're eventually seeing yourself doing, put that work out every day. And, and that's what I try to do. That doesn't mean I don't sometimes doubt myself or think, oh, should I post this or that? You talked a lot about this, this veneer of perfection yeah. and how social media contributes to that. Yeah, and I think, we're, I think that perfection is still currently exists, but I think people are talking more and more about truth, about full disclosure of how you work, like the questions that you're asking me. I want to know how people make it happen, how financially, whether it's family structure, the support system, do they have a team? Those are the questions that interest me because I'm not, I don't really care what it looks like. I want to know how it's built. That's where I'm going to, because I have my own vision for what I'm creating, but it's like how the business aspect is not, it doesn't come so easy to me. So how can I build my business in a way that it's sustainable, that I don't burn out? Do you do sponsored posts? Occasionally, yeah. yeah. And it has to be things that really feel like I can make it work, you know, and it resonates in some way. Uh, but it's not, I wouldn't say, I don't have an agent for it. It's not things that I seek out, yeah. Have you ever once called yourself an influencer? Um, no. <laughs> you had to think about it. <laughs> no, no, I was going to say something. No, I'm not, oh, no. But again, it's because the word influencer now has a connotation, but I do want to influence people with my work. I do want to bring them to ideas, to think about what they eat, how they shop, how they think of themselves. Like All those things are important to me. So maybe not influencer in a paid sponsorship context, but definitely I want to influence you know, those who have eyes on me. That is the most beautiful explanation I've ever heard of being an influencer. Well, thank you. Yeah. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you daydreaming about culinary school again? Make this the year your dreams become reality with Le Cordon Bleu, the legendary culinary school. Study classic French culinary techniques in cuisine and patisserie as part of their exclusive nine-month Le Grand Diplôme and graduate into a world of opportunity. You also can extend your course of studies to include culinary management and dedicated internships. Le Cordon Bleu has locations in more than 20 countries around the world and located within some of the best food cities out there. London, Ottawa, Madrid, Bangkok, Tokyo, and of course, the spiritual home of cuisine and Le Cordon Bleu, Paris. Turning your daydreams into reality is closer than ever. Visit cordonbleu.edu for more and let your culinary adventure begin. Back to my conversation with Aaron. Let's talk about your gorgeous new cookbook. I'm sure you'll be influencing a lot of people to cook from it this fall. But I want to first talk about you being gluten-free. Yes. So you started as a pastry chef. When did you find out you had aversion to gluten in some capacity? I had a formal diagnosis in 2010. So I've been gluten-free for over nine years now. When I think back, I always had symptoms. As a kid, I was 
probably too much information, but I was always constipated. I had, um, I suffered depression, anxiety. I had anorexia, um, so many things. And I think food really aggravated all of that. So since I've, uh, and then I was diagnosed with Meniere's disease and um, Hashimoto's. I know Hashimoto's. What is Meniere's? Meniere's disease is uh, inner ear inflammation. So it gives you uh, vertigo, migraines, uh, hearing loss. So I'm deaf in one ear right now. So all of that was really, it really was stabilized through diet. And I hate the word diet, but I mean way of eating and things that I was eating and not eating. When all this started to happen, were you still in Spain or were you in America? No, I was, I was here. Okay. Yeah, I was okay. in Florida and I started having vertigo attacks. Vertigo, for anyone who's never had vertigo, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. It's horrible. That would yeah. last, episodes that would last 12 hours. Oh. Yeah. I'm so sorry. With That's vomiting. Brutal. Yeah. All, too much information, but really difficult. My parents had to come and live with us for three months so, I could, so they could take care of me and help wow. with the kids. But it really set me off on this, kind of redirected me. And the same path, but with this another focus. So it was taking something that I carried from my heritage, from my grandparents and my parents, and really give it something that was mine. Because I always was looking for that. I was looking for some sort of identity that was mine, separate from my family, but it still have like a line through. So I felt very excited. People ask me all the time, like, how did you feel? Was it difficult? And I was like, no, in fact, finding what it was that was contributing. It's not the only cause, I have to say, but contributing to my illness or my, you know, momentary disorder. Kinda. Did you have sympathetic doctors? Well, that's another conversation, but yeah. I did not. Because with Hashimoto's, <laughs> like, we've, we've talked to people before who have that, and sometimes doctors just make you think it's all in your mind. Yeah, and especially back then. So this is, Hashimoto's was first 13 years ago, 14 years ago, and nobody ever talked to me about stress management, nourishing foods, lifestyle nobody ever said anything they just said take this and I think doctors have come a long way I don't know really I don't know I well certain doctors I am still amazed when I go to primary care that they don't ever ask what you eat Mm. ever yeah yeah or disregard I have I've heard people tell me that their doctors say that gluten cannot be in it oh don't worry about it it's like well, really? It's from, so easy to look into it. From what I hear and read, yes, things are changing, and, and there are definitely more mindful practitioners out there. We've met a lot of them. But I don't know. The, I'm going to the wrong doctors. But so much of it is dictated by health insurance, Yeah, you know, which I'm lucky to have. Yeah. But sometimes that's another crazy thing in this country, the whole healthcare system. And that's like a big undertaking. And but you go to these I places. I get really political. <laughs> I know, and there are a hundred people in the waiting room, and the doctor's just going to do the bare minimum of what the doctor has to do to get you in and out and see and all it's those. It's all patients. about codes. Yep. They yep. can't treat outside of those codes because it has to be specific testing. And I went through a lot of testing that I had to pay out of pocket. I can imagine. So yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Oh my God, we'll save the rest of that tangent for another day. But okay, so you did. You did find doctors. You did start to put the pieces together yourself mm-hmm. about stress and diet. Yeah. I was really excited. I wanted to explore 
a different way of baking. Because gluten-free cooking is fairly simple, right? But the thing that came from my family that I was doing as a profession and as a career that I loved was all around wheat and gluten. So to kind of find alternative ways to recreate and, and make my things be really good on their own right. Not just say, oh, it's good for gluten-free, but like actually make them like sourdough bread or pa puff pastry or things that are like really delicate and a little bit temperamental, I was really excited about. And I think I've captured that in this book and, and I'm not one to really, you know me, I'm, it's not like I'm a seller of anything. You but, are so <laughs> not. <laughs> but, but I'm really proud of it, I have to say. Oh, you should be. Yeah, absolutely. When I, when I got it, and I was, I, my heart was pounding, and I was walking to my publisher's office, and my editor had left a copy there for me, and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna find? And I opened it, and I was like, oh. It was the biggest relief, and, because I knew I spent so much time, but then how it all came together, the paper, the colors, like I just, yeah. yeah. The color palette's beautiful. You match your color palette today, I, by the I way. I do. <laughs> intentional or not and even just the cover I I know it's always such a struggle trying to decide what food to put on the cover of a cookbook yeah. but this is really so mouth-watering oh, it's you. these beautiful roasted carrots it's just can I gorgeous. give a shout out to Eliza Simon no <laughs> of course you from can Henry Street <laughs> studio you can you can shout out your whole team tell oh. us about the amazing team okay. you worked with so first I my agent Judy Linden uh, from Stone Song, and then my editor, Susan Roxborough. And then Eliza from Henry Street Studio, who's a ceramist in Brooklyn that I love so much. And her ceramics are all over my book. And I feel like the carrots that you're talking about really come to life with her ceramics. And then Jen Ali, who's a friend of mine, and she helped me kind of extract the story that I wanted to say with this book. Dorothy Brand, who shot portraits of me, Jen Elliott Blake, who um, helped me with some styling setups. Yeah, and just friends that kind of let me crash their beautiful yards and take, let me take apples from their trees and all of that. For everybody who's a, a cookbook nerd, and I know that's a lot of you, even before you get to the recipes, there's so much about this book. Like you're talking about even just the creaminess of the paper stock yeah. that you chose it's startling almost because you're so used to like a brighter, whiter paper stock and yours is like, I mean, it's almost the color of butter. That was Anna. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful well, butter. I love it. Um, that was Anna Goldstein, who is the art director of Sasquatch, my publisher. Sasquatch does beautiful books. Yes. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did Renee Erickson's, which is yep. so fabulous. So tell us how this is different for folks who have your first cookbook. How is this one different? The first book was... Definitely the photography is influenced by Seattle, and the first book was in Florida, so diff totally different lighting and mood. The first book was around seasons, and this one is through a day in uh, my life. So it starts with the basics, building basics for your pantry, breakfast, midday, everyday dinners, gatherings, and then desserts, and a section of baked bread. So like things that you would make when you have time sort of like meditative. I feel like baking, making bread, rolling dough is really meditative. Um, and that's, there's a section just for that. And so it's, it sort of goes through a day. And how the introductions are really much about how I approach kind of the day. And, and, and not trying to be too precious about it, but really 
why I do what I do or how I think about things, how I think about mindfulness beyond just all the things that people talk about, but really like eliminating. I always say it's like take away anything, just take stock of what you have, be efficient with your food, be minimal with, you know, be just sort of like disciplined without being too rigid. But I think that is kind of the message that I wanted. I wanted to strip down the recipes of anything that wasn't necessary. Where is a good place for people to start? It's not always at the beginning with a cookbook. I think they need to read my introduction. I have a little short mini series called A Cook's Remedy, and it's five episodes of video, and it's like five minutes each. And um, I think I, it's, it's a couple of years old, so some, sometimes I, I think about the stories that I wanted to tell then. I've kind of told them and I've moved on, but a lot of that essence lives in the four first pages. I think you can get kind of a, even though it's not a recipe, it, it gives you high, kind of how I come to it and what my perspective is on, on cooking and cooking for yourself and for other people. And I don't want it to be stereotypical. Or, but I think why you do what you do is so important and not forgetting that. And, and I think the introduction, if you read the introduction, it'll kind of, it'll be your introduction to the world of this book. Which recipe is the most you? Well, I make the sourdough bread every day. So I make that every day. I don't even have to look at a recipe. It's in my head. And Do you have your own starter? I have my own starter. There's a recipe how to get your own starter, and it's really simple. It's alive right now? It's alive. It's in the refrigerator, and it's four years old. Really? Mm-hmm. Did you name it? It's called Mother. <laughs> That's kind of boring, isn't it? I call it Mother in Basque, which is Amachu. And it has a, a tag on it, like a label on it. We did a whole little thing on um, people starters in the new issue and what they named them. It was, I sh- it I was cute. I should have been clever. Yeah. <laughs> Too but late. It's beautiful. Mother and Basque. Yeah. That's a beautiful yeah. thing to call it. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, you know, obviously I call my mom Amachu. And so I always thought of her. So, but beyond, I mean, I think that's kind of like what I'm most proud of in this book. And people ask me the most about it. Yeah, and there's, you know, like lentil soup that I make once a week at home and Spanish tortilla, which is also what I'm, one of the things that I'm asked to make the most. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, like all my friends when they come over. Can you make us some tortilla? And yeah. A good tortilla is the thing of beauty. Yeah. Tell people what goes into making a beautiful tortilla. And I actually have a video and I'm not, I don't have any ads on this or <laughs> any sponsors. So I, it's really to teach people how to make it. If you go to my site, you can see it under videos. And it's olive oil, onion, although onion is contingent in Spain. If you're a purist, no onion, but I like onion. Potatoes, salt, and eggs, that's all. So five ingredients. You use a lot of olive oil. You're essentially poaching the potatoes in oil then they get drained. So it's very slow cooking for a long time, probably like 20 minutes. They get drained, seasoned with salt, mixed with eggs, and then you kind, it's not a frittata. So a lot of people put it in the oven, it's not. So you cook it on one side and then you have to flip it. And you, just, you don't just flip it like, you know, when you see chefs flipping things on the, <laughs> but you actually use a large plate or a lid of a pot or something to flip it and then you finish cooking it on the other side. And it's so simple, but it's in Spain, 
you know, you go to one bar, tapas bar, for because there's like a competition in towns, like when they have festivals, like tortilla making competition. So it's like a very prideful thing. But it's like a perfect omelet. Like it sounds simple, but it's so yes. about the technique and the the beauty of the ingredients. Yeah, yeah. And the, your touch, like, is it too? Did you brown it too much? Not enough. Anyhow, this is. Big. <laughs> Are you a Jose Andres fan? You know. He had a show in the on the Spanish channel before he he was already in the U.S. But he came he became famous a little bit later, and he is so warm. But then everything he's doing for social justice and all uh, climate, like um, the storm, obviously in Puerto Rico, but anything he does, Haiti, you know, the Bahamas, yeah, yes, so thoughtful. Again, he's my he yeah. Yeah, giving me goosebumps goose, right now. I'm, you are one big goosebump right now. I just want to, I just, I'm excited for people like that who have built something and have, they wish nothing more than good for others. And I get really emotional, but yeah. yeah. I think it's great that we have him in the industry yeah. to have someone like him to look up to. But the reason I ask is because he opened that beautiful little Mercado over at Hudson Yards. It's so wonderful. I mean, he's wonderful. We hate the guy who owns Hudson Yards, but whatever. <laughs> That's a, another story for another day. But we love Jose Andres. And we had tortilla. Did you have it or did, was I the only one who had it? Just you had some too. Really just wonderful oh, tortilla. Good. But he's got all these little kind of like booths and stalls and he's making everything. You can go get paella and tortilla and yeah. ice cream and just sort of everything your heart desires. You can tell by the way he works and builds things. He's very generous, and I, I admire that. And no scandals. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, we do appreciate that. Uh, yes. What are you excited to uh, make as the seasons change? Yeah. What just excites you so much about fall and fall produce? I love quins. So what do you do with quince? I think that I wouldn't know the first thing to do with it, okay. to be honest. Quince, uh, you have to know you cannot eat it raw because it doesn't really have much. It smells incredible, but it doesn't taste. It's very hard. It's hard to peel, so sometimes you, know, you kind of have to be a little careful when you're peeling it. And you normally, you have to cook it. So you either make jams with it, you make paste, so membrillo. Uh, you roast it. You poach it, uh, jams. So anything that it requires a little bit of sugar, but then cooked. It needs to be cooked. And, and usually it's, there are methods of preservation. So I've had membrillo with cheese. Mm -hmm. What else can you serve it with? The membrillo, like the quince mm -hmm. paste? Uh, good question. What, what do you do with it? I serve it with cheese and nuts. and uh, Well, we used to eat sandwiches with it. When I was a kid, it was a baguette with cheese and membrillo in it. So I don't... Yum. Besides cheese, honestly, the membrillo itself, the paste. Oh, but with a sandwich the fruit, sounds fab. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it was I never baguette, crusty uh -huh. baguette, sliced cheese, and sliced membrillo. Beautiful. Yeah. So where can people see you? Are you touring? Um, I'm not really touring. Yeah. Um, They'll I'm have to come focus. to Jubilee Seattle. <laughs> yes, I will be. Uh, uh, right? I'll have you my will book be. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, 100%. I'm, I'm touring. I shouldn't say that because I'll be touring in Seattle. I, my book launch is at Book Larder, which, which is my favorite. If you ever, those who are not from Seattle, if you ever come to Seattle and love 
food and books, you should visit Book Lover. And my first book was launched there, even though I didn't live in Seattle then. And my second book will be launched there. And Lara Hamilton is amazing. And then I have a few events. I have an event with Linda Dershing, who you know. Oh, fantastic. We love um, Linda. The yeah, Rock and Frankie Roll and Joe's. Frankie and Joe's. We, yes. Okay, so you all have to come to Seattle Jubilee because it's just such a great place. It's a wonderful place for women in food. Yes. And I don't think it gets recognized for that. Maybe because I live there, but I think more and more. And you're all, I mean, through you, I've already, you've mentioned some names that I didn't know, and I'm excited to meet at the Jubilee. So I'm thrilled. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much to Aaron for sitting down with me. We cannot wait to hang out with you at Jubilee Seattle. Be sure to check out Aaron's latest cookbook, Canel Avenue. It's a beauty. Grab a copy at your favorite indie bookstore. Thank you to today's sponsors for supporting our podcast, Le Cordon Bleu Culinary Schools and Emmy Cheeses from Switzerland. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of Cherry Bomb Media. Our show is edited, engineered, and produced by Jess Seidman. Cherry Bomb is powered by Lauren Goldstein, Audrey Payne, Kia Damone, Donna Yen, and Maria Sanchez. Our publisher is Kate Miller-Spencer. Our theme song is all fired up by the band Tra La La. Thanks for listening, everybody. You're the bomb. I'll have what she's having. Hi, my name is Austa Samvichian Clausen, and I'm a freelance writer covering food and drink, travel, and culture. Do you want to know who I think is the bomb? The founders of Pineapple Collaborative, Ariel Pasternak and Atara Bernstein, because they're creating inspiring and innovative ways for all self-identifying women who love food to connect and learn together.